Hey, let's open our Bibles to Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We've been taking our time uh, through this, and there's a lot of things here. And let's just go ahead and read it. Let's begin in verse 33. We're going to finish the chapter today. Jesus, speaking to the multitudes, the disciples, speaking to his disciples, he says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And, whatever com- and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too, and give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away." And you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. A very difficult passage, wouldn't you agree? And for me personally, as I began preparing for this morning's service, you know, there's that old adage that um, uh, the farmer is usually the first partaker of the fruits. (laughs) And as I began reading this and studying it and really praying about it, the Lord just began to reveal in my own heart where I have fallen so short of this. And it it really crumbled me into pieces. It really just... In a loving way, he just smashed me to pieces this week on this, on this passage, these three sections that we're going to look at this morning. And it's a good thing, because I, like yourself, we're, we're all growing, aren't we? we? We never stop growing. In fact, I think learning and loving to learn and keeping yourself in that place of being um, hopefully humble, but willing to learn... Keeping yourself in that place is very important because we have to recognize that God knows all things and and, and we don't know very much. I'm coming to grips more and more as time goes on that I know very little. And I'm coming even to greater grips with with the fact that I don't really have control over how much I think I do. I think I have control over certain things and I'm realizing, Lord, I I don't seem to have control over a lot. 
And I need to trust you, and I need to have your spirit dwelling firmly in my heart and surrendering my heart to you. And that means all my attitudes. And that's why this, we've been taking our time through this, through the Beatitudes, because this is the heart and soul of, 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 of this life that we have. And Jesus is teaching us this. And it really touches home, doesn't it? It really challenges us and just really convicts us. And, and I pray that it does that for you this morning as it has been for me. But, you know, Jesus in verse 33 that we're beginning with is continuing with the same thought of how this blessed life of the child, of being a child in the kingdom of God, how it's to be. And he's teaching us, remember, that it's the internal observance and the obedience to these things that are most important because our external obedience to the law and the things of the law, it is important, but the internal part, the, th- the thing that nobody can see, that is even more important because if the internal heart and attitude is dealt with, then it will not manifest itself in an outward expression. Does everybody follow me? In Matthew, remember Jesus said, he says, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts and murders and adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. He would even go on in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, and say, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And it does. Out of the abundance of my heart, that is what comes forth. I can try to hide it, but if, I, if you fellowship with anybody long enough and you talk with them long enough, you'll find out very quickly what is on their hearts. The thing that motivates them, the thing that really drives them, you'll find out pretty quickly. And that's challenging too, isn't it? Because I think, Lord, of all that, for all that you've done for me and all that you've done in my heart and all that you've done in our hearts... Ought not you to be that part that is in my heart? Instead of politics, instead of other things. And granted, all those things can be, you know, they all, they're all valid. But there's one thing that I need. There's one thing that I really need to be focused on, and that's Christ. And his life in me. And me being able to share the gospel with people regardless of their backgrounds, regardless of their persuasion. The church, we need to be about that more than anything else. All the other stuff will pan out in time, but that one thing is the most important because our relationship with Christ is the only thing that gets us to heaven. Nothing else matters, do you understand? I mean, granted, there are important things. You understand, there's, there, there's like a, a bunch of things that are important, but then there's one thing that's really important. And I fear that myself, and perhaps you, if the shoe fits this morning, I fear that sometimes we can be all about this stuff and we forget the most important thing. He's got to be the top. He's got to be the head. He's got to be everything. And it all comes from my heart because here, let me just give you some examples. If I deal with anger in my heart, it will be less likely to be shown in, my, in what I say or in my actions. And if I deal with lust in my heart, then I will be less likely to fulfill those things in the physical. Paul would go on in Romans and he would say in uh, chapter 2 verse 28, He would say, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Because remember, Jesus is talking about this this, uh, juxtaposition of 
the outward expression, the outward things that we can do, and then the inward reality. The, the, the Pharisees and the scribes were all about the externals. They, they did the right things. They said the right things, but they didn't, actually, they didn't do the right things. They said the right things, but they didn't do. And the Lord is going, I'm not so much concerned about the externals because in order for the externals to change, the internal has to change. That's why when you plant a seed into the ground, if you plant a, a, an olive seed or, or, or whatever, an olive shoot, you're not going to get strawberries. The internal is an olive. And as you plant that olive tree, what comes out of that? From the very internal part of it, it's built. It comes an olive. It's more important what's within. And then it manifests itself outwardly. He, uh, Paul said to the Romans, he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision, which, again, he says, that which is, a, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. I love that. It really, he gets right to the heart of the problem. So let's look at chapter um, 5 here, beginning in verse 33. Notice Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said. And notice the difference, because now he's saying that, yes, it is written, but now I say to you. So what does that mean? That means that the authority that Jesus has, because isn't he the, 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 the word of God? Isn't he the one who inspired the Old Testament scriptures? He was the one who inspired all of the Old Testament prophets to write the law. So he was there in the very beginning. He knows it very well, but he says, that's all fine and good. But now I'm saying to you that you can't just go through the motions. You can't just be focused on the externals. You have to get, it's, all, it's always been about the internal reality, the internal relationship. So Jesus says, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. To swear falsely is literally to commit perjury. It means to be lying. And this idea of an oath is, is a Greek word, which means that which is pledged or promised with an oath. And see, the Lord doesn't want us to make promises that we can't or are unable to keep. Have you ever made a promise that you can't keep? We all have. But we are not capable or able to control much in our life. But everything is always changing, and we are changing as well. So it's important that we are people of the word and people of our word as much as possible because it is better to not make a promise or an oath than to, keep, to make an oath or promise and then not to keep it. What does it tell us in, in James? Remember James being a half-brother of Jesus. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. You know, there used to be a time that when men shook hands concerning a deal that they had made between them, that their handshake was their bond, that their word was their bond. But now, because of the sinfulness and the deceitfulness of, of the human heart, everything is written up by lawyers. We become, you know, what a shame. We become a nation of lawyers because sin has overrun our culture and we don't even keep our commitments. And yet we make vows and oaths all the time. 
And there are certain oaths and and vows that we have to take in a culture, and there's nothing wrong with that per se, but we better be sure to to fulfill those vows, those oaths. And let me just give you a few of them. Wedding vow. You stand before God and all of your family and friends, and you you vow that you're going to be, you know, to love this person uh, through richer or poor, in sickness and in health, and you go through all that. You make a vow before God. That's a serious thing. When you rent an apartment, you sign an agreement. You're basically vowing and saying, I vow to pay this back. I vow to give my, you know, my security deposit, and then I'm going to pay you so much you know, every month, and I've got to pay for my utilities. Our mortgages, when we take out a mortgage on a house, we've got, we got to promise to pay that money back. Or bank loans, or yes, even student loans. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to go anywhere with that. But I will say this, it is a promissory note. I remember when I went to college and I had $100,000 in school loans at the end and, if, and it's all paid off by, by God's grace. You know why? Because I signed a promissory note. That note said, I promise to pay this back. It's my debt. And so I pay it off. And even swearing in of an office, of, of, any, of anybody, of any politician or magistrate, they have a swearing in, right? But vows are sacred and binding. In Numbers chapter 30, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Or if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while her father's house in her, in her youth and her father hears her vow and the agreement by which she has bound herself and her father holds his peace, then all her vows shall stand and every agreement with which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father overrules her on the day that he hears it, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand and the Lord will release her because her father overrules her. And the same is true as you look further into that chapter, the very next verse, which we're not going to get to, for husbands and wives. If a wife makes an oath and the, and the husband hears it and he doesn't overrule it, then that vow stands. It becomes their vow now. But if he hears it and he overrules her, then that, that, that vow is null and void. And Jesus is saying there's no need to make vows. Granted, we have to make vows. We have wedding vows. We vow to pay off our mortgage, our our car payment, all that other stuff. That's all fine and good. But you know what? Be careful to do that. And when you make a promise or an oath or a vow, take it very seriously. And better that you didn't make a vow. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, you remember there was a woman by the name of Hannah who was married to Elkanah. And she was barren, and Elkanah had two wives, Penina and Hannah. And Penina was reproducing like crazy. Hannah was barren, and she didn't have any kids. And she was vexed in her soul, and she was hurt. So she goes to uh, Shiloh at the time, and she made a vow. And she made a vow, and she said, O Lord of hosts, if 
You will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. Notice the conditional vow. If you do this, God, then I will do this. And that's usually what people do when they're desperate. Have you ever done that? When you're desperate, Lord, I'll do anything. Just get me out of this mess. Lord, I'll scale Everest with nothing but a backpack and no tent at all, no oxygen. I'll just do it in the rawness of my power. Just get me out of this mess. And then the Lord delivers you you out of the mess, and then you're like, he's like, okay, so uh, when are you taking off to Nepal? (laughs) Can't afford a ticket, Lord, so I'm just going to, you know. And notice, after Samuel was born, then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do, you, do what seems best to you, but wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. And then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him, because she, she vowed to give him to the Lord. And Elkanah made sure that she followed through with that promise, that vow, because it was his vow now too. And they did follow through with that. Now Samuel is going to be in the... Uh, house of God with um, Eli and his sons and he was going to grow up and be a wonderful prophet but she made a vow did she need to make a vow that's a good question you know I wonder what would happen if the Lord just if she said to the Lord Lord you know how much I've wanted a, a male child Lord would you please give me a male child And don't put any conditions to it. I think the Lord would have just done it for her. But the Lord also gained something really wonderful. He gained a prophet out of it. And and he was important in Eli's life. He was the only man in the the tabernacle at that time who really had integrity. Because Eli, Eli the the priest at the time, didn't have any integrity. Neither did his sons. But making vows like this can be dangerous because usually we are unable or sometimes unwilling to make good on our end of the bargain. I remember many years ago in 1992, I, uh, I I'd shared this with you before, but I made a vow to God. I remember I was uh, going to school and I was uh, learning to be a classical guitarist. That was what I wanted to do. And so there was this... Uh, the Southwest Florida Symphony had a concerto competition and I entered the competition and, um, and I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, if you, would allow, if you will allow me to win this competition, this concerto competition, I'll give you my life. <laughs> and so I won. <laughs> I won the competition. I was the first guitar player, the first classical guitarist in the history of the competition to win. And then I went on my merry way, continuing in my sin. And the Lord got a hold of me. He got me. I'm standing before you. And because he says, Robbie, you know, you're, you're, you're faithless, but I'm going to be faithful because you said that, and I gave you that competition. I gave you the money, and I gave you the, all that stuff. And you know what? I'm going to make good on my promise. I'll see you in a few years because I'm going to fulfill my, my end of the bargain in you. And I didn't even want anything to do with him at that point, but it's funny how the Lord works. But God was faithful. But I made a vow, and I was unfaithful, but God was faithful. Perhaps, um, 
But perhaps I would have won the competition if I simply just asked the Lord to help me win. Maybe I would have, maybe I wouldn't, I don't know. Have you ever wanted something so bad that you do that? I'll do anything. Lord, if you're willing to bring my wife back to me, I'll never cheat on her again. I'll go to church every Sunday with her. I'll clean the table after dinner. I'll do the dishes. I'll put my laundry always in the clothes hamper. I'll make sure to put the toilet paper on the outside. And I'll put the cap on the toothpaste. I won't just leave it with the guts hanging out of it and it's all over the place. See, you guys have the same house that I do. But Jephthah was another man who made a rash oath, and God never required it of him. But yet he was so, he wanted something so bad, he was willing to throw everything on the line. Don't throw everything on the line. That's the whole point of this whole thing. Remember, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and he said, and this is recorded back in Judges chapter 11. Uh, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, Lord, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon who were idolaters, if you deliver them into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, then surely uh, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. And little did he know that it was his only daughter that would be coming out to meet him, excited to hear that her father had won the victory. Now, did he actually use her as a burnt offering? My conviction is I don't, I don't think so. I think the Lord allowed him to substitute something else. But the scripture is very vague about that, which kind of makes you... It is. It's very vague. And there's some people say, oh, I think he did it. And other people think, oh, I don't think he did it. Well, human sacrifice was something that the pagans did. So... I'm of the opinion, and it's just an opinion, that he did something else. But even David, he would say, I, I will pay my vows which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. And we do that. But Jesus goes on in verse 34 and he says, But I say unto you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. I believe that you can give a vow or an oath without swearing or invoking something or someone greater than you. You can simply promise to do it. That makes sense, right? I can make a vow but not attach conditions to it. I can say, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm just going to, I just promise to do this. I'm going to give it back or I'm going to, you know, and some people swear by invoking something or someone other than themselves to secure confidence in the other party that they are willing and able to come through on their end of the deal. And here's some examples. We hear this all the time. Oh, I swear to God that I'll be there tomorrow. I swear on my mother's grave that I'll pay you back at the end of the week. How many times have you heard that from somebody? Probably a family member. <laughs> some of you are laughing. We know a lot now, don't we? Yes. But Jesus, again, points to the fallacy of the scribes and the Pharisees, even in their swearing of oaths. What does it tell us in Matthew 23? Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, now he is obliged to perform it. Jesus said, Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. He says, Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar? That, the sacri that sacrifices the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it, and he who swears by the temple swears by it by him who dwells in it 
And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. No need to swear. No need to make some kind of binding thing. Well, God, if you do this, I'm going to do this. Why not just ask him, Lord, would you please do this? But see, in our own infirmity, in our own uh, lack of faith and, and, and to prove our desire, isn't that why we add conditions? We swear to it. We say, Lord, if you just give this to me, I'll... Whatever it is, you fill in the blank. Jezebel swore by an oath to her own life. She said uh, concerning... Um, uh, concerning Elijah, who had killed her prophets of Baal. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and also how he had executed all the prophets with a sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, and here she makes a vow, so let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as one of them by tomorrow about this time. And of course, she was not able to obtain Elijah and kill him. And the Lord saw fit to make sure that that vow that she had taken was fulfilled. And it was. In 2 Kings 9, verse 30 through 37, the Lord allowed this evil woman who continued in her evil and idolatry to be killed. And it was a horrible death. You read about it in that verse that I just shared with you. But notice we go on to verse 36. And nor shall you swear by your head because you cannot make one hair white or black. Does anybody have white or black hair this morning? Some of you have none, none at all. Um, and Pastor Jeff used to make jokes about his, his beautiful locks because he didn't have any. And um, he'd be laughing if he was watching this. But, but Jesus says, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And isn't that really simple? It's really simple just not to make, not to swear, not to make any kind of agreements. Just say yes or no. And you're not able to make one thing happen or another. James in chapter 4 verse 5, he says, Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Because I don't have control. I can't make promises where I can't keep them. I'm not even aware of what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know if my car will start. So how can I tell you and vow to you and give you, I promise tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock I'm going to be at your shop. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. If the Lord wills, I'll be there. And if he doesn't, come find me because I'm probably alongside the road stranded somewhere. James, again, Jesus' half-brother, would say in chapter 5, verse 12, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. I think he understood what his big brother was telling and what his big brother had said to him. Just very simply, make your yes, yes, and no, no. There's no need to make oaths and vows when you don't need to. Trust the Lord enough that if it's really him, he's going to provide it. And if not, then you don't want it. Oh, Lord, I pray if you allow me to win the Powerball, you know, the $1.3 billion or whatever it was, you know, I'll give 90% to the church. He's like, okay. <laughs> if you do, by the way, win the Powerball and you want to give 90% to the church, we'll gladly receive it from you. <laughs> I'm only slightly kidding, uh, but anyway. But only God is able to swear by an oath because he's the only one who is capable to see it through. We are sinful human beings. We're corrupt. 
right? But in Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 15, and this is after uh, Abraham attempted to um, put his son to death because God told him to do it. He was in the process of doing it, and the Lord intervened, and God provided the ram for the substitute in Isaac's place. And notice what it says in verse 15 of Genesis 22. It says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself, notice the angel of God, which is Jesus, we believe, By myself I have sworn, says Jehovah, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying you I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens. In Hebrews it tells us a very interesting thing. Hebrews 6 verse 13, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, when he made an oath, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. So it's better for us not to make oaths. And yet, there are times that we have to. But we need to do everything in our power to fulfill those things if we do. Jesus goes on now in verse 38. And he says, you've heard that it's said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is what is in the the Latin is called lex talionis. It means the law of retribution. Lex means law, and talionis means retaliation. So it's the law of retaliation. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And this was in the law, but it was given so that retribution had limits and that the crime fit the punishment meted out. It wasn't a a, a blank check to avenge somebody and, and go further than what the crime specified. So it was a protection, if you will, lex talionis. It didn't just give a blank check for somebody to you know, go after somebody because they did something. You had to be careful in what you did. And it was meant for personal acts of retaliation. In Exodus, what does it tell us? Uh, Exodus 21. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Notice it's not left up just to you know, a mob mentality. No, there's limits. But if, anyone, if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male and female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of the tooth. How many toothless and eyeless servants are running around? But this was the Old Testament law. And yes, I'm sure the crime rate was incredibly low. Because there was, if this happened, this happens. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth might be necessary for those who are still governed by their old nature and our sinful society. but not so with the child of God. We are to operate in grace, mercy, compassion, just as the Lord Jesus Christ has shown us. 
And Paul captures this very well. In 1 Corinthians, he said to them, Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to brother against uh, law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. And so our, our life, our code of conduct is very different from that of the world, isn't it? It ought to be. And that's why Jesus is sharing these things. But I tell you, verse 39, to not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now this is speaking, I believe, of personal retaliation, not concerning things of civil law and criminal activity. If a criminal does something, he deserves the consequence for that thing. But we're talking about, Jesus is talking about a personal thing between people. And if someone commits a crime, they need to face the consequences. That's really what Romans 13 is all about. Those things are there to, uh, to slow down the spread of sin and for consequences. But this verse that we just read does not mean that you can't protect yourself or your family if somebody is physically attacking you to hurt you or to kill you. You, you need to defend yourselves. That's why a shepherd would have a staff and a rod. <laughs> the staff would be one where he would wrap it around the neck of the sheep when they got too close to a cliff. But a rod? Why was that there? To help the poor guy because he was walking with a limp? No, it was there to, to whack the, the wolves and the bears and the leopards and whatever was trying to eat his sheep. He was, he was, it was his mandate to protect. And guys, just like our, it's our mandate to protect our family. It doesn't mean that you don't do that. But when somebody is personally attacking you with words and, and slander, it's a, it's a kind of a different matter, especially if it's done in for righteousness' sake. When you're suffering for righteousness' righteousness sake. And the best example of this, I think, was when Jesus was beaten and humiliated by the Roman guards. What did it tell us in, Roman, or I'm sorry, in John chapter 19? Let me read it to you. It says, So when Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and, they, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. And then he said, then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again, noticed this, and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Wait a minute. So he wasn't charged for anything, but yet you're going to beat him and scourge him with the cat of nine tails. You're going to scourge him and, and, and make him a bloody mess, but he hasn't done anything wrong. He just admitted it. And yet Jesus had every right to call down a legion of angels and smoke them right on the moment. To turn them in, literally into, there wouldn't even be a black spot left. Just nothing, just gone. He could have done it. He could have done it, but he knew the purpose for his life. And he knew what this was all about. This was their personal vendetta. They hated him. And they would do anything to destroy him. Even though Jesus wasn't found guilty of anything, as it says in Isaiah, you know, he was a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep, you know, silent before its shears. But Jesus, he went the extra mile and showed us by example. He turned the other cheek, because that's what he's telling us to do when we are 
personally malign somehow, to turn the other cheek. He wasn't driven by anger or wrath to look to get a pound of flesh. He didn't retaliate. There will be a time that he judges. And when he does, no one's going to want to be around. Because when Jesus comes back in his second coming, then it's payday. And it's not just for personal vengeance. God the Father is going to destroy those people on the earth at that time in his second coming, those who have been have rejected Christ, they are going to suffer. And it's their own fault. It's their own fault, not God's fault. We choose, but he will retaliate. And it'll be a righteous retaliation. And God the Father will mandate it. And he will make it come to pass. But notice that Jesus is not just a religious leader who says, do as I say, and then he doesn't do it as well. No, he is our example, our prototype. That's why Paul the Apostle would say in Corinthians, you know, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, be ye followers of me, even as I am of Christ. Peter would capture this idea in his first epistle, and he would say, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh, for this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? In other words, you deserve that. But when you do good and you suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For this you were called because Christ also suffered for this, leaving us an example that you should follow in his footsteps. See, nobody likes that. Nobody likes that. And we don't have to like it. I mean, for anybody to go, I can't wait to be persecuted so that I can, you know, be like Jesus. Nobody wants that. And nobody calls for it. But when it does happen, and it's because of righteousness' sake, ought you not to take it patiently? We ought to. To follow the example of Jesus. But not in America. You cross me and I'm going to... You know, I've been really challenged by this. I'll be honest with you. This passage has literally ground me to powder. <laughs> the last couple of years have been, and I'm sorry for saying this again, but I'm just being transparent and honest with you. The Lord is dealing with me on internal anger that I've got. And he's, you're probably feeling similar things, perhaps, because I'm a patriot. Every one of us loves the idea of justice. Justice is not a bad thing. I deserve, I want justice for myself too. If I do something wrong, I'm going to pay the price. But if I'm doing good, then, you know, then, I, then I avoid those things. And God has given us by his spirit that spirit of the desire for true justice. And then when we don't see it, when we see leaders who are supposed to be doing the right things and doing just things that are just the exact opposite. It's really hard. And the Lord has been dealing with me on that. And you know, I apologize to all of you because there's been times where I've just been struggling and it shows. It shows in the things I say. And forgive me for that. Especially over the last couple years. 
I feel like there's been times where I've just been a tyrant in my heart. God wants something better. He wants something better for me, and he wants me to be different. And I'm up for the challenge. I'm up for it. I want it. I know it's right. So, Lord, I'm saying here, take me. Forgive me. And change me. Make me that person. Make me this person that you're reading. This is why it killed me. (laughs) This is not a message I wanted to share today because it hit really close to home, right center here. Jesus goes on in verse 40 and says, If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Remember, a tunic was this outward garment. Back in that day, they would have at least two garments. They would have an inner garment that they would be covered with and then an outer tunic. You know, And the Lord is saying, are you willing to give up those things? Maybe even your rights for the furtherance of my kingdom. Am I willing to be wronged? Am I willing to be cheated? And not be running to the lawyers and screaming bloody murder and going on Twitter and everywhere else and screaming and complaining about it? Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. And give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Just the care for others and willing to do without sometimes to help somebody else. Or, or maybe making your life a little bit skinny to give to somebody else. You know, These things we ought not to fall back or, or you know, run away from. Jesus goes on in this last section. He says, you have heard that it was said you shall love or agapeo, agapeo your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may, and here's the reason, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil. What? You allow your son to rise on the evil and on the good and send rain on the just and the unjust? I thought you would only send rain on the just and put a cloud over their house. You know, I realize sometimes how far I am from the kingdom of God, how far my heart has gone. And it's passages like this that bring me into calibration again to God's heart. And boy, it's a stern wake-up call. It's like a, a bucket of water, you know, sort of like those guys who win the, you know, the, the, the Super Bowl and they bring this great big igloo cooler full of Gatorade and they pour it over the coach, you know. You just, Ugh! It's like, Lord... <laughs> But back in verse 43, he says, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor. And it does say that. Even in the law, it says that. In Leviticus, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Notice, in your heart. 
He didn't even say outwardly, but in your heart, because that's where it starts. See, even the law was about the internal, not just the external outward. So he says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Wow, and Jesus says that. And he says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. Yes, the word bless is the Greek word eulogio, which is where we get a eulogy when we have funerals. People come up and they speak well of the person who has passed. That's the word, that's what it means. But we shouldn't be fake and over the top with this, but a possible example of this kind of heart is when somebody has defamed and cursed you, and then somebody asks you uh, about that person, and instead of returning defamatory statements, you focus on the things that they've done well, or just leave it alone and leave it, leave, leave it be, but don't come back and retaliate. Or if someone is yelling at you, you don't yell back, but maintain control of your tongue. Doesn't James tell us that? That our, our tongue is like a, a viper. It's like a fire, on he, a fire of hell. This little thing is like a rudder, but yet the rudder can stir a ship in, the, in an ocean. Just a tiny piece of thing can stir a ship where it needs to go. The smallest member, but yet the most potent and the most poisonous thing. Can I bless somebody else instead of curse them? Especially when they've cursed me, that's turning the other cheek. We don't see a lot of that happening today, even in the church. Somebody gets on somebody and starts talking about you, and boy, you're right back. Have you seen, some of you have been the victim of, uh, of, of seeing these battles play out on social media. I would encourage you to, to forget about social media. Delete, delete, delete. See ya. <laughs> Everybody, you know, it's like, I had oatmeal today for breakfast. Who cares what you had for breakfast? And who cares about every little thought and the intention of your heart? You know, I'm feeling lonely today. And, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, we put everything out there. It's like, is my heart supposed to be for everyone to see? God, God is like, no, just let me see it. It's worse enough as it is. Don't share that with anybody. For heaven's sake, keep it to, just between you and I, Rob. I'm like, okay. Nobody needs to hear that I like raspberries in my, you know, Czech cereal. <laughs> oh, I'm in a lot of trouble, aren't I? But notice what Proverbs tells us. A soft answer. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Why can't we just hear something and get the business from somebody and just keep silent? They don't know what to do with that because they're expecting a fight. Have you ever seen that? I've seen this, where somebody has been really angry with me, and they're just letting me have it, and they're just spewing out all this stuff, and I just sat there, and God, for some reason, you know, once in my life, I have the grace to not say anything, and I just, I don't say anything. And they're like, they're, they're expecting, they're waiting for me to respond, and I don't respond. The fire goes out. <laughs> the fire goes out. But when you retaliate, oh, then it's like a ping-pong match between two guys, two, you know, two guys doing this sort of thing, and it's just going back and forth, and it's a huge mess. Proverbs 26 tells us, for where there is no wood, the fire goes out. Don't supply the wood for the fire, and the fire goes out. Bless those who curse you. Bless those who hate you. It doesn't mean you have to be fake and phony, but you know what? When they're really nasty to you, you can be kind. 
Or just don't say anything at all. Don't retaliate. Don't think an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, brother. It's in the Bible. I've got license to do that. Jesus, I know. Romans 12 is very convicting. Paul speaking to them in chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute. He basically reiterates the, what Jesus had told him. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Oh my goodness, that just... I was filled with arrows this week on that verse. I felt like the Assyrians had just had 200,000 men and they were all aiming right here. A body full of arrows was high. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The idea is that when you do these things, it really brings shame upon them. And they're willing to think about their attitude as well. But if you respond in kind, you're adding wood to the fire. And it's just going to continue, and it's going to continue. And I don't know about you, but I, I don't like to fight. I mean, I, if I don't have to fight, I won't. You know, if you corner me, then I'm going to fight. But I don't like to fight. I'd rather not fight. But to live and be obedient to this principle is supernatural, isn't it? It does not come in the natural. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. And God has called us not to live according to the natural, but to the supernatural. We need to walk in the Spirit, motivated by the Spirit of God in us, if we are born again. And in this world, just the opposite of, is true. The world overcomes evil by doing evil. And Jesus in verse 45 says, here's the reason that you got to do this, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Whom, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. The implication here is very obvious, isn't it? If God is this way to those who are evil and to those who, and to those who are good, then we need to have the same attitude, don't we? I need to have that same heart. And Lord, I don't have that heart. But I can go to him and say, Lord, I'm, I'm just not there. I'm, I'm really frustrated. I'm really angry, God. And he's like, I know. When's the last time you came to me and really laid that at the altar? When's the last time you were ashamed of that, Rob, and came to me and said, forgive me, God, and, and work this out in my heart. I'm so, I've got issues. And he's like, I know. Will you, are you willing to give it to me? But God is... He's gracious and compassionate to all of humanity, isn't he? He certainly gives a token of his goodness that no one will be able to say, on the day of judgment, you were unfair to me, or you only reached out and blessed those who love you. No one will be able to say to God and bring an accusation against his goodness and say, you were not fair to me. You did not you know, give me the opportunity. He causes his 
rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He causes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. Remember in Psalm 73 where Asaph was writing the psalm and he says, Lord, I look at all the wicked and all the things that they're doing. They're doing all these wicked things. They're having great parties. Their family is completely wealthy. Everybody's fat and happy and nothing is happening to them. There's no disease. And then finally the man dies. And then he gives all of his stuff to another, and, and Asaph was so overwrought with this whole idea. And he's like, Lord, I'm one of your children. Now, why am I going through such difficulty? I'm frustrated. That, 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 look, look at what's happening to them. Look at how you're blessing them. They got the house on the lake, they got the five car garage. Their whole family is healthy. They got their picture on Facebook, and everybody's looking great. It looks like an Olin Mills portrait. You know, it's like the Brady Bunch, you know, and everybody's happy and the dogs are playing, the Frisbees are throwing, the sun is out, and you're like, why am I such a mess? Is my family a mess? And then Asaph said, until I went into the house of the Lord, he saw the glory of God. Then, he said, I knew their end. Because that be, if that be the case, and again, God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, but if they don't turn, then this is all they've got. Then praise the Lord, have a really great time, because if you reject Christ to the very last moment of your breath, then this is the best you have. This is it. Enjoy it. And it's a short time, folks. Think of this. Eternity. You and I aren't going to be around for maybe 70, 80, 90 years if we're, if we're fortunate. But now we're talking about eternity. And you may go through a difficult time now, but guess what? There's a time coming, pleasures forevermore for eternity. And it, they're good pleasures. They're not the pleasures of the earth that you might think. These are holy things, good things, and your heart's You're going to be completely different. And do you understand that that's where, that's where God wants you to be? He wants everybody to be there, but he knows that they not all will come to him. But my heart, this internal thing in my chest, I don't even know what my heart is. Certainly it's a physical organ, it's a muscle, but there's something. There's a soul, there's a, there's a, a thought behind my actions, there's a motive. Everything that's in there has been something that I've seen or heard. And I've allowed my heart to either go along with that flow or I've read the word of God, and it has changed my heart. Are you reading the word of God? Is it changing your heart? It's a cleanser. When you read the word of God, it's like getting out the, um, what's that stuff, the abrasive stuff that you squirt in the tub, just comet, whatever. Yeah, it's like comet. <laughs> it's scrubbing the soul. It's like a two-edged sword, you know, the, discerning the thoughts and the intentions. About how often are you reading the Word of God? Or is it just like, well, I'll, when I come to church, I'll open it up. When I get home, I'll set it on the shelf. See you next Sunday. You need to be in the Word of God every single day and be in prayer every day. Yes, it's discipline. We need to discipline ourselves. For if you love these things, verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? This doesn't mean that you shouldn't love the people who love you, but there's going to be even greater reward for when you love those that don't have any way of paying you back. And yes, you will be rewarded in glory at the Bema Seat judgment. 
you'll be rewarded for those things. And notice he says in verse 47, and if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Everybody does that. Even the sinners, when they get together, they greet one another, they help each other out. He goes, but uh, do not even tax collectors do so? And tax collectors weren't very you know, well-liked at this time. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. What? I'm not perfect. God knows I know that. But you need to be mature and complete, a full age. And many of us have walked with the Lord long enough that these things, and maybe they are, and I hope they are, they should be things that people can see. The fruit should be there that we can all walk by and pluck it off. And so, you know what? You've been walking with the Lord a long time, and I can see. And, and, and encourage one another like that, too, you know? When you see somebody who's been walking with the Lord a long time, and you've seen them change, sometimes it's good to tell them, you know what, brother? I know you've struggled with this issue for a long time, but you know what? I know in our conversations over the years, and I've talked with you, and all of a sudden, that thing is just gone. I just want you to know that because sometimes it happens so small sometimes that we don't see the little baby step increments and then we see the big jump someday and we don't realize that there were a lot of days where just little things were happening in the basement of the heart. We didn't really understand or see it and sometimes people just need to know that. You know what? Remember three years ago when you're telling me that you had this problem and I, you don't have it anymore. You had this problem with your speech and your filthy mouth or your language, whatever it may be, and now it's, it's, it's gone. It's going away. Be encouraged by that. It's good. But yes, be perfect. Be mature as your Father in heaven is mature. I'd like to read something to you, uh, and then we'll end here. It is uh, a true story, and it's very short, but it kind of puts the capstone on all of this that we read today about loving your enemies and going the second mile. This is from a pastor in England many years ago. He said, A number of Christians had been severely beaten by the commandant of a Russian prison. And he says, One day they were huddled together in their dirty cell where the door opened. And the prisoners were amazed when officials threw the commandant among them. He too had been beaten unmercifully. And the Christians hastened to attend to the man's wounds. And after a while, he was able to give his testimony. And here he gives it. He told how he had been seated in his office when a gentle tap on his door announced a visitor. And he arose. He opened the door. He saw a boy of 11 years old standing with a single rose grasped in his hand. And the boy was invited to enter, and as he stood by the commandant's desk, he said, Here, commandant, it is my mother's birthday, and I always gave her a rose on her birthday, but today I would like to give it to you. And the communist official thanked the lad and then asked, Son, why did you bring it to me? If this is your mother's birthday, why don't you give the rose to her? And the boy replied, Sir, I cannot because you killed her, and you also killed my father. They were Christians. But when she was alive, she always taught me to love my enemies. Herr Commandant, I would like to give you this rose. To your wife as a gift from me. And the Commandant was overwhelmed by the sincerity and the simplicity 
of an 11-year-old boy, and he surrendered himself to Christ. But when his superior officers discovered what had taken place, they beat him unmercifully and threw him into the prison. And that young Russian boy was the living example of what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Pretty amazing. There's an example, a tearful example. And you think about what God has called us to do. It is supernatural. We don't have it within me. I don't have it within me. And that's why I got to go to the Lord every day. And I'd love to ask you to join me. And let's stand together. Lord, we come before you this morning, and Lord, as this message has just destroyed me this week in such a wonderful way, Lord, I pray that you would, yes, do the same, my brothers and sisters, this morning. Lord, because faithful are the wounds of a friend. Lord, you never reveal these things to draw us apart from you, Lord, rather you you share these things that we might come closer to you, that we might have a better understanding of ourselves and your heart and 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 sometimes the gulf between those two hearts is great and lord i ask that you do that in me continue to do that in me and and continue to do that in my brothers and sisters as well lord that we might have this oneness of heart that lord we wouldn't be like the world that we would be otherworldly, that we would be Christians bought and sold to the king. We've been bought with a price. Lord, help us never to forget that. And Lord, change us in our hearts. Lord, that the very inward things that we struggle with, these inward things, you would address there in the private, in the quiet, where nobody can see, Lord, that our lives would just be manifested for your glory. Lord, do that work in us, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.